welcome to the Enthusiast Podcast, where I sit down with leading founders, operators, and investors that are trailblazers in their ecosystems, leapfrogging development and creating growth for their economies. We dive into the nitty-gritty of scaling business and investing, showcasing the tremendous success cases beyond Silicon Valley. Hi, this is Pat from The Enthusiast. We've got a fantastic episode in store for you with Axel Christensen, Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist for Latin America and Iberia at Leading Asset Manager BlackRock. We dive into the macro environment, its implications for venture emerging markets, what this risk-on environment truly means for how we make our asset allocations and how fund managers are making decisions. Really so much to unpack here in terms of the macro component of investing that is an exogenous variable to many operators, but crucial to keep in mind when you make your investment decisions. Now, without further ado, directly onto the episode. And remember, you can follow The Enthusiast wherever you're getting your podcast. Make sure to check out our newsletter on LinkedIn or Substack. And if you like the work we're doing, we would appreciate certainly if you could drop us a rating wherever you're listening to your podcast. Now, directly onto the show. Hi, Axel. It is such a pleasure having you on the show today. Pleasure all mine, Pat. Thank you so much for making the time. And uh, a lot has happened in the last two years. It certainly has been quite bumpy in the capital markets and uh, in the world overall, one could say. With your position at BlackRock, I just wanted to pick your brain on some of the developments that have been going on and how are those affecting the global economy. Certainly, we're going to talk about the implications for LATAM. But I'm just really curious to have your take where we actually are at the moment, because we definitely have seen a massive correction in the capital markets after the boom we had last year. And the question is really, have we hit rock bottom already? Are we still moving towards it? Is it going to be double dipping? So what, what's your perspective on this? Well, Pat, I think the short way to put it, we think at BlackRock, we're in a transition. We're leaving behind what some academics have called the era of great moderation, which you know pretty much went through the late 80s until recently, probably until just before the pandemic hit the, uh, hit the globe. And we're still finding out with a new regime that has yet to find the name, perhaps, and probably more important in terms of investment, Pat, we think that this new regime calls for a new playbook, or perhaps more than one playbook. A lot of things that made sense in the past, like reversion to the mean, or buying bonds when, when things were looking ugly, or you know the, the famous buying the dip, might not make the same sense going forward because global conditions have changed. So we have yet to find the name, but certainly the new era that we think is starting to become kind of more clear is presenting us with a lot more uncertainty, a lot more volatility, but also a lot more 
opportunity because you know volatility is kind of the the evil twin of you know opportunity or or a much more higher degree of of dispersion of result that that means that choosing winners uh, and avoiding losers is becoming uh, so much more important in terms of investments and and I know that that kind of sounds like timing markets it's we're, we're I'm not you know probably saying that but definitely it means being much more nimble and agile in terms of adjusting to what we think is a faster moving uh, global economy very interesting. I mean, so much to unpack there. You're talking about a new paradigm to a certain degree, a new playbook that is required. And I mean, there's other terms for this, kind of that we are entering this FUCA world, kind of an environment of extreme volatility. And we're going to see this play out across uh, different angles, probably climate change and geopolitics, to to just name a few. Um, what What is that new playbook? Like, you were saying that one has to be a lot more flexible adjusting, but but how does that work in practice? And how do asset allocators confront this new reality? Well, first of all, acknowledge what I might have mentioned uh, just, just now, that what worked in the past might not work as expected in the future. So um, say, for instance, uh, kind of the basic relationship between uh, equities and bonds, kind of the cornerstone of a lot of investors philosophy is is go for growth and growth is is majorly fine, uh, found in equities right and so your typical kind of benchmark portfolio for a lot of investors was 60% equity because you had uh, you wanted to have more kind of exposure to growth and then you had the bond exposure uh, and bonds were typically there in a portfolio for two reasons one because they provide income so a lot of investors need income because you know they're paying for stuff. But more importantly, bonds were the ballast, the the anchor of security. And if we look at what happened this year, Pat, that didn't work out. Actually, at certain points, if you look at global fixed income benchmark indices, they actually were underperforming. They were doing worse than equity. So so that traditional relationship between equities and bonds is something that a new playbook has to kind of rediscover. And probably important for our conversation, that also means that for mainstream investors, not like the more sophisticated ones like a pension fund or an endowment, but for you know the common Joe or Jill investor, the third category of alternatives starts to get much more relevant because that's uh, where you're going to be able to find a lot of things that bonds and specifically we're bringing to the table, uh, but now you have to kind of reach outside and and within the alternative space for several reasons. That's where you can find a bit more of a of a secure uh, asset class during uh, times of turmoil like the ones that we've had this year. Perfect. And do we have to get used to a heavier inflationary environment in in the long term? Like are, are those periods over where we had two point five percent, two percent? annual inflation in the more mature markets? Uh, that's exactly the case, Pat. We're, we actually have as an investment theme in itself, the fact that we will have to live with inflation. And, and, and that's important at so many levels. That means as, you know, as consumers, uh, inflation becomes uh, an increasingly important element. If you look at recent uh, 
you know, retail trends, uh, people are much more, um, you know, sensitive to prices than they have in the past. If you look at from the perspective of policymakers, so what does it mean for a central bank, for instance, uh, to have to deal with much more persistent inflation? Over the last couple of decades, central banks and their policy has been built around targeting um, inflation rates. Uh, and uh, a lot of those targets were quite low, 2% in the U.S., 3 to 4% in some Latin American central banks, which I know a little bit more about. Perhaps this new playbook, this new regime calls for revisiting those targets and understanding that the trade-off between controlling inflation and allowing for economic activity to uh, to find its uh, its path is going to be uh, much more of uh, a dilemma. Um, it's going to be a much more tense relationship. And and then obviously, as an investor, um, unless you lived in uh, you know two or three countries in the world where inflation was really a problem, for most investors, it was not really a big deal. I mean, if if I were to approach you, Pat, and you know, try to convince you, you know, have this great investment strategy that focuses on you know defending your investment portfolio from inflation, if I approach you, say, two or three years ago with that approach, that you know, you would found me crazy. I mean, why would I care about inflation? So many papers and magazine covers literally calling for the death of inflation. And suddenly inflation is back. And not only for, you know, your emerging market audience, Pat, where it really never went away. It was kind of always somewhat in the background. But think about someone hearing us from the U.S. or from some parts of Europe, say Germany. You literally had a whole generation that has had zero experience in terms of dealing with uh, what inflation means and the effects it has on our day-to-day living, but also on the way we want to invest. Absolutely. And you're mentioning already uh, the effects play out quite differently across economies. And you've got the developed markets and then the, the, the emerging economies. I'm wondering what's your take on emerging economies and how they are maneuvering through this environment, right? There has been some interesting news coverage on central banks in Latam, for instance, being very much proactive. There was a big article in The Economist the other day about the Chilean central bank. And unfortunately, inflation didn't really go down yet, right? But that might have different factors. But what's your take overall around this? And how is this new environment affecting emerging economies overall? Well, it's been key, Pat. Um, If you think about how central banks in uh, overall emerging markets, but but most certainly in Latin America, they were very quick to react to inflation. Uh, they were quite aggressive about it. So, so take uh, Brazil, for instance. Um, rates in Brazil at the beginning of last year were at 2%. That was a historically low level. They're, right now, they're just below 14%. That's a big change in less than two years. Okay. Now, what's important is that you know, if we look at other inflation cycles, and more importantly, what central banks do about it. Typically, when the U.S. central bank, the Federal Reserve, started to react, meaning increasing rates, to higher inflation, that meant that Latin America was doomed to go through a crisis. Or overall, emerging markets were really going to have a hard time 
but not this time. Uh, among other things, I think a combination of being much earlier, so to the extent that when the Fed started to increase rates, rates were already high um, in most of these emerging economies, but also because they learned from uh, some of the mistakes in the past, so flexible uh, exchange rate regimes, a higher degree of reserves, uh, much uh, more developed local capital markets. So that has meant that actually, if I look at some of the currencies that typically, um, you know, really take the beating when you have a rate cycle uh, in the U.S., currencies like the Brazilian Real or the Mexican Peso have actually withstood quite well, a lot better than supposedly safe haven type of currencies, say the euro or the British pound or even the yen. So, so that speaks to that, you know, um, they've really, I guess, have been able to leverage their closer experience to inflation and, and acted accordingly. And, and as a result of that, um, I'm not saying that they won't suffer some pain because of the global economic slowdown. Definitely that will affect, and you're starting to see that show up in some of the uh, forecasted growth numbers for the region or overall emerging markets for that matter. But but definitely um, they've withstood this in a lot better shape um, than um, what these cycles would have been in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really admirable, one could say, uh, that we didn't see these massive capital outflows, uh, at least uh, from a currency perspective. And uh, that that's definitely positive, I, I guess, and that we've got um, kind of we are less at the exposure of of the Fed and kind of when the U.S. sneezes, then then uh, Latam gets the cold, right? And and it seems like that there's a bit of a decoupling going on in that sense. But nevertheless, I mean, Latam historically has not been the most popular place for investments due to currency risk and currency volatility. One might say, right? Um, how do you see this at BlackRock? Um, is that something that in the future you consider still to be an issue, excluding the outliers, Venezuela and Argentina, which are definitely cases by itself? But how do you see LATAM in kind of that currency environment further ahead? Yeah, you're right, Pat. So, so you're uh, spot on. If I look at flows into publicly listed uh, companies here in the region or even, you know, Latin bonds, you're spot on in terms of flows diminishing. But actually, if you look at things from a different perspective, if I include uh, different ways to invest in the region, so it might be through infrastructure projects or, you know, direct investment rather than through financial markets done by companies uh, or by investors in private vehicles. Or if I look at startups, if I look at companies that are coming into markets with new um, you know, business type of models or disruptive type of approaches, that many of them are not getting funded at the local market level. Some of them are going directly, say, to the U.S. or to Europe to fund that uh, that growth, those companies are actually, or the overall ecosystem in the region has actually seen quite a significant, um, you know, level of growth over the last year. So, so um, I think what what is going on is that actually Latin America has um, attractive attracted a lot of of, of of interest and actually money, uh, 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 you know, um, because of things going on, but not through the traditional channels. So it's been, again, through 
private vehicles or direct investments. Uh, we have to figure out, um, I guess, a way where flows through the traditional, you know, public um, listed companies in the region uh, might uh, see a recovery of flows uh, again as well. So I, I think that that's the main challenge. Um, so more people in the region can get access to them. But I think that um, the overall growth, if you include these other channels I mentioned, has actually been quite quite good for the region in, in the recent past. Fantastic. Yeah, there's definitely still still a lot of work to be done and, and so much more potential to be leveraged. Um, but but there were some positive signals, at, at least in the last few years, in terms of startup and VC investment activity. Continuing on that thought, I mean, uh, the dynamic between VC investment investing and uh, in a risk on versus a risk off environment. And it, when you then put in the emerging economies component into it, it gets even more crazy. But just looking at alternatives, venture capital investment in a risk-on environment. What changes? Because when we just compare alpha and how you can allocate your money, you might just put it in a treasury bond, which is basically risk-free, and uh, you get a good return on it at the moment, one could say, or even just pure uh, accrued interest in, 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 in a bank account nowadays, even, even so, rather than investing in VC where you don't have the liquidity and uh, you, you're exposed to that volatility that we see at the moment as well. So what, what's your take on this and how do you see investors maneuvering this in a risk-on environment? Yeah, that's a great question, Pat. So, so what we've seen is actually alternatives have stood up in this environment because there's several reasons, but let me go through some of the more important ones. First of all, public markets, you know, publicistic equities, uh, as well as bonds that, you know, that are traded on liquid markets have a different price cycle than most of the private markets that make up alternatives. So private equity or private credit, direct real estate, what have you, a VC, of course. So one of the sources of diversification that you're looking for, that, as I mentioned at the beginning of our call, traditionally you, you found in bonds, traditional bonds, is not that strong anymore. If not, you know, it doesn't really exist. So alternatives are providing that diversification that comes from the fact that the price cycles of the assets are somewhat decoupled. There is somewhat of a, you know, divergence. And, uh, they're not parallel universes. They are communicated, but there is a delay for, for, for instance, for the corrections that we've seen this year in public markets to eventually find their way into private market prices. And that's, that delay or that decoupling is something that adds to your diversification. But then on top of that, um, if we are looking for other things that we want to include in, in terms of an investment strategy. So, so think about a couple like one further diversification. So you will get to increase the universe of eligible investments when you include private markets, be it because you're including sectors that not might not be available in public markets in a given country or region. So Latin American is a good example of that. But you also are investing or diversifying in different stages of growth. So definitely public markets, you're uh, going to be much more exposed to, you know, more mature companies, more incumbent companies. Although I have to say that the time to market for 
very um, young companies with this disruptive uh, kind of innovation to make their way to public markets has you know reduced significantly over the uh, last decade or so. But but definitely you're still finding a diversification in terms of the where in the life cycle of companies you'll find. And then finally, uh, within the alternative space, and I come back to this idea that inflation is here to stay, uh, there are certain types of alternatives that actually have a better capacity, that they're more flexible, they're more adaptable, they're more resilient at the end of the day to deal within an environment where inflation is more persistent. So maybe VC is not necessarily that that example, but definitely at, say real estate, for instance, where the whole business model allows for price adjustment or infrastructure, um, where you are investing, say, in toll roads or in other type of, of you know businesses where the cash flows are uh, contractually or by regulation allowed to adjust for any type of inflation going forward. So uh, alternatives overall are providing some of the missing parts, if you will, in terms of diversification, in terms of of um, you know getting more defensive, if you will, or, or better protection. Probably that's a better term. Uh, in terms of concern about inflation. There are challenges, of course. Alternatives is not an asset class that was really designed for non-institutional investors. Uh, there are liquidity issues that you mentioned. And let me finish with this. Probably that lack of liquidity actually has some you know, positive aspects to it. Um, the lack of liquidity means two things. That First, you really have to think hard when you have to invest in something. Uh, there is no uh, literally space for a mistake. If you make a mistake, you can't, you know, just get out of that investment. You have to live with your mistakes. Um, so there's a lot more thought in the process of investing, or there should be. And then second, alternatives, diff, uh, you know, differently from public markets, tend to have some source of discipline in the investment process. So if you're aware about what we you know, we would call Vintage type of diversification, that means spreading out your investment in the asset class and kind of diversifying year by year. That helps avoiding, you know, bubbles to to grow too, too large. And it also helps kind of, you know, investors panicking and, 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 and you know, all running at the same time towards the exit because there's a somewhat of a discipline in terms of how the investment process, um, you know, rolls out. So, so definitely alternatives. It has its challenges. I mentioned liquidity with um, retail investors is, is still finding kind of a way to um, to kind of um, live together. But, but definitely, it has all these other positive aspects: certification, protection against inflation, and finally, this, you know, uh, this discipline that I think uh, is is worth mentioning. Absolutely. So many important points there, especially the aspect on the vintage diversification or time diversification, one could say, maybe in simpler words. I think it's just crucial, especially when we come out of really those the boom in, in 2021. If you just had a new fund and you kind of allocated 70% of your investments of your dry powder in that year, probably it's not going to be a great outcome. Time diversification, I think, is just crucial in, in that asset class. What about PE? Like, I would have thought that in the current environment, maybe we would see a bit more private equity activity, more consolidation, as there should be some interesting targets out there, I would presume, to acquire. You're right, Pat, but I think the major challenge for that 
dynamics to follow through has um, to do with the fact that publicly listed companies, especially in in traditionally high growth areas, technology, have become very cheap. So the main competition for an investor is not within the PE space is, you know, what do I do with a company that was, you know, 20, 40 percent more expensive than I can currently invest in right now? It's a mature company. It has a very tested business model. There's a window of opportunity. Who knows how long it will last, but where the main competition from private equity is not within private equity, uh, but actually from very cheap publicly listed companies. There's several very well-known companies, as you might know, Pat, that their current market price is below their IPO price. There is this idea of this new regime and new playbook and and certainly, we believe part of that is pricing in more uncertainty and more volatility. And that means, for instance, that multiples of fair valuation are going to be somewhat lower than we expected because we're pricing in more risk. But it seems that a lot of these companies, their, their stocks uh, and other type of, of, of securities have perhaps overreached in terms of, of, of correcting to a, a more challenging environment. But time will come where that window maybe closes, uh, prices recover, and then private equity will provide, um, I guess, um, an increased set of opportunities in terms of consolidation, or again, giving you exposure to some parts of the market that it's really hard to find through public type of channels. And, and you can find at the right size of the company, at the right stage of development, only in the private market space. So true, that correlation between uh, the public versus the private markets and that. And certainly there there would be some interesting investment opportunities out there now in, in the public market markets in that regard. I mean, it's, it's interesting with private equity, Spectra, the Brazilian investment firm, they, they released an interesting uh, report on... Uh, some of the reasons why private equity has not really performed to a certain degree in comparison to to the US, one could say, right? And apart from the monetary um, topic and, and currencies, another point was that there's just not enough depth in the market that, for instance, that the repeated transactions that one PE sells it to another PE and to and 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 not necessarily goes directly onto the public markets, but that these repeated transactions do not really take place. Is, is the market in, in LATAM, for instance, is it still too shallow in that sense? Well, uh, I mean, I guess it depends on how big the fish are in that pond, right? So what we've been seeing, and maybe this is what is challenging putting the market, is larger fishes trying to, to, to swim in, in the pond here. So, so traditionally, um, I'm old enough, Pat, to remember that the LATAM kind of, you know, PE universe was was just oh, some local players, perhaps a global player, but with a very small exposure to LATAM and, and probably only limited to the larger countries like Brazil or Mexico. That is changing. Uh, we're starting to see much more interest in, and in, even in companies that come from medium-sized economies, say Chile or Colombia, because these um, companies are able to expand their footprint to the overall region. But that also means that larger fish are coming into the pond. And, and so the, the liquidity issue is becoming a bit more challenging for them as well. Now, having said that, again, private equity, as well as other private markets, they also kind of go through cycles. So 
until recently, um, as you know, Pat, it was all about growth and then growth and even more growth. Now, suddenly, because of what's been going on in terms of public market prices, because of of the appetite to um, to continue to uh, put money to work in the space, suddenly the investors are are discovering the importance of being profitable, of of having uh, you know positive EBITDA, or you know the opportunities of a much more financially sustainable growth going forward, and not um, you know exclusively about growth. So so those changes in terms of the emphasis are also having an impact on. Uh, perhaps some companies that were looking great in terms of growth uh, a year ago maybe have changed uh, places with companies that were growing more slowly but have a much more uh, solid model in terms of uh, cash flow generation and, and and you know definitely the appetite from investors towards positive cash flow growth has changed significantly in a very short time uh, span, I must say. So many great points there. And I wanted to make a more philosophical question, kind of one of those big questions. And if you if you could change some parts of the financial infrastructure and in emerging economies and where you feel like those are some of the ingredients on the laundry list to really get them to catch up, to converge to the more mature markets, what would that be? Uh, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. So many things to mention, Pat. But if I have to just boil it one to one, I would think about allowing regulation to open more towards competition. I think about fi the financial sector, for instance, and I understand that regulation has to be concerned about, you know, financial stability. The health of the banking system is very important. It's a source of funding all the way from housing to um, you know corporates and what have you. So it's important that, that, that it have some degree of regulation that ensures it works properly. Um, but at the same time, you have to strike a balance so newcomers are able to find ways to grow and to challenge the incumbents and to kind of move things uh, again, to kind of, you know, offer a better service, a better product, or probably both. And again, going back to the financial system, if you look at what has happened with the fintech uh, landscape in the region, it's been very, very important in terms of, for instance, moving the needle of financial inclusion, of, of you know, more competition in terms of product offering. But that only happens, Pat, if, if there is enough space in terms of regulation for these newcomers or these uh, innovative companies to come in. So if I had a magic wand and if I, I could change just one thing is kind of find that uh, kind of the, a perfect balance between um, enough regulation to have a safe kind of environment, but, but open enough to allow for change, for innovation, for you know progress i would say in so many in so many areas to happen that's such an important point and unfortunately fintech in latam is definitely still booming many very exciting cases and i know you you play a part in that as well which is which is just fantastic to see and santander and chile just announced that they invested in destacame so there's some cross-pollination from the legacy players maybe towards the fintechs and uh, open banking standards being improved and maybe having a bit uh, more of a competitive environment. And that's definitely fruitful and, and necessary for 
a financial market in in the region that maybe is not really up to its potential and uh, is maybe a laggard in what we see globally, one could say. Yeah, that's right. Uh, de definitely, there's a lot of room for improvement. Now, having said that, Pat, in emerging markets overall, and that America is no exception, um, the fact that a lot of these things are rather new allows some of these disruptors to really enter the markets, you know, in a very kind of aggressive in a good way and, and make the changes happen. Sometimes in developed markets, there's so much inertia, there's so much, you know, legacy technology that coming in with a, with a disruptive type of pro a proposal is, is a lot more difficult. Again, uh, I'm sorry about kind of over abusing of the fintech sector, but think about how fintech have, has allowed people that were literally not part of their local financial uh, infra uh, you know, system or infrastructure. Uh, they didn't have a bank account. They were, didn't have access to credit. And suddenly, because technology makes things more simple, they're able to allow um, you know, financial services to come into their lives and make things easier, maybe set up a business where someone can just Venmo them a, a payment rather than sending cash or something very difficult to do. Uh, leverage on open banking platforms to you know, suddenly kind of connect businesses that were probably there, but very much in a, a very informal setting. Suddenly, they're starting not only to be connected, they governments, you know, eventually can start collecting taxes from them. They could get more formal in terms of how they hire workers. So, so a lot of this is helping bring areas of, of the region into a better uh, environment, I think. So so definitely, yes, you're right. Uh, there, there is a gap compared to a lot of developed markets in so many ways, but the impact they're having when you're able even to, you know, only partially close that gap is so significant that I guess it's it's worth highlighting that even recognizing that the, the, there is still a, a significant you know, difference that has been uh, has to be uh, closed between these two uh, parts of the world. Totally, couldn't couldn't agree more with you. And this is uh, also kind of a passion project of of mine. And we had many times the the topic of financial inclusion on the podcast and leapfrogging different stages of development. There, we can just take advantage of that that open space. Um, we had some really great conversations with Monica Brandengel from Krona. Arjuna Costa from Flourish. If you just compare, and that's also why I'm so bullish uh, on, on LATAM or emerging economies in general. In, in Germany, for instance, like N26 is great. Is it going to change the realities of the average German that already has a bank account? Probably not. Neon, Creditas, or Newbank, or some of the other players, Fintual in Chile. This certainly is a game changer for the population there. And, and that's, to me, just the, the, the beauty of, of business and entrepreneurship that comes to light in emerging markets. Absolutely right. They're, they're bringing in people that until recently were left out. And if anything, uh, we've seen you know, a lot of evidence of social unrest in the region over the past year or so. And, and a lot of that is, I guess, frustration from people that want to be part of, they want to be included. They want to be able to use uh, uh, an account or being able to set up a business, and and um, they want to be part of. Not they're not want to kind of cut things up or or destroy anything. They they just want to be 
included in what's going on and in, in, in the opportunities of growth and having a better um, you know, future. Before we moved into the quickfire round, I mean, there's there's one topic which um, we've excluded till now, but uh, there's been some noise in, in the crypto world. And uh, I wanted to uh, have your perspective on uh, not only FTX, but kind of in general, how you see the crypto space evolving. We have many crypto users in Latam and emerging economies overall, uh, people that even are betting their savings on it. So it's definitely relevant to, to talk about this. And how do you see the space evolving? Do we go through kind of these adoption curves as, um, I mean, Carlota Perez has, has this interesting uh, curve on, on, on technology adoption, which probably makes, makes all the sense in the crypto case. But where are we at with crypto? Crypto and in a broader sense, kind of digital assets, um, it's first of all, it's very hard because it's still kind of a there's still a lot of early stage, you know, pockets in terms of what's going on. It's 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 not kind of a very uniform space. There's some things have been more evolved, but some are very early stage yet. So it's very difficult in this environment to be very effective in terms of choosing winners and losers. If anything, and if you know, I know that we talked about you know how we have to look for a new playbook, but Certainly, there is some value in, in looking at the past. You might have heard that you know past does not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. So, so if we look for places where it rhymes, Pat, um, I look at other kind of these type of of situations. It reminds me of of say, for instance, these gold rushes at the turn of, of uh, the 19th century in, in California, say. It was very hard to choose what which one of the miners was going to strike, you know, a, a gold deposit. Now, if you put your money with the people that sold the axes and the shovels, th that's where you made uh, a lot of serious money. So, so from an investment point of view, because of this uh, still lack of clarity of who the winners and losers are in terms of a specific crypto or a platform. There are, we think, interesting opportunities at the early stage in kind of the infrastructure providers. So, so I guess, you know, not just myself, but my, my, my firm has, has had a lot of focus on understanding how this infrastructure builds up. And, and, and you, um, the, the, the beauty of that, you could be agnostic on which type of crypto actually does worse or better because uh, you don't, you're not really kind of choosing who the, uh, who the winners are now i think also interesting is under understand what has crypto or digital assets how has have these developments impacted more broadly so so the fact that for instance that central banks now are have advanced significantly in terms of of digital currencies now very different they are regulated they are very centralized Uh, you know, uh, a lot of, of the interest and attractiveness of crypto is is precisely because they're they're you know very decentralized. But I guess what has happened recently uh, kind of remembers us the necessity to strike a balance. I mentioned it uh, in terms of the finance sector. You have to have enough regulation um, for people to find it safe to invest, for people to know what's going on, to avoid uh, the tremendous asymmetries of information but not too much to kill creativity and innovation. So again, that's a, it's easier to say than to really um, do it. But, but I would say at this point, crypto has done enough to start moving central banks in a direction 
in terms of making a lot of aspects, again, not all of them, that people are looking for in terms of making uh, it more easier for people to transact, um, uh, to be more efficient. Maybe we will get that from kind of kind of the usual suspects, perhaps, but but definitely, I think that they the overall kind of crypto movement has helped move the frontier from that perspective in that sense. Now, how this ends, who knows? I think it's very important to follow. I think a lot of lessons learned here in terms of what really should be a source of value is the fact that an asset price goes up. Is that enough for it to be kind of something that secures a given level of worth that people kind of leverage on and what have you? I guess an important lesson yet again, and actually, and definitely this is something that rhymes every time, Pat, is leverage and how cautious you have to be about how leverage can really, you know, uh, kill you on the way down when things are, are you know, not looking great. But I guess we're still, the the, the match, um, we're, you know, we're having this, this conversation around the World Cup. So I think that the match is over and we've seen a lot of, some of the World Cup matches, the final result be quite different from the score at the, 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 the midtime. So we'll have to see. Fantastic analogy with the World Cup and the Gold Rush. And uh, we certainly is, is still a, a match that continues to be played and we got to see what the outcome is there. But as you were saying, already many learnings. Definitely, we have to strike the right balance between encouraging innovation and, and finding the right degree of regulation that we need in that space. That's certainly true. Before we close, there's uh, three questions I'm asking everyone on the podcast in a quick fire round. Would you be ready for those uh, three questions? Let's go for it, Pat. Perfect. So first one is, um, who's an entrepreneur you admire and why? Oh, that's that's a good one. I'm going to go for a, a classic here, Pat. I'm going to go for, um, for, I don't know if anyone mentioned Thomas Edison before uh, in terms of um, certainly the impact that Mr. Edison had. And I know a lot of people actually say that um, it was he just stole other people's ideas and made them commercial, but definitely Edison made a significant uh, change. And, and he was thinking, he was not a one-hit wonder. He, he was definitely someone who was very involved. Oh, that, that's definitely a perfect match. Huh? Absolutely. So second one, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received and would like to pass on to others? I guess... My first job, I've been involved in investments pretty much for 30 years almost, Pat. And and my first boss told me that the difference between being too early in terms of an investment and being plain wrong can be very, very uh, subtle. And, and, but you have to uh, understand it and, and live with it. If you can live with being early, and eventually that's where you will probably make the major kind of home runs. But when you take those type of decisions, Pat, you have to deal with the uncertainty uh, of maybe you're making just a mistake. Um, so uh, I guess that, that was very important in terms of understanding that it's not clear. Probably the best investment you'll make in your life is something that if you look at how and what was going on when you made it, you probably might have not made it that decision today with more information. Very insightful advice for sure. And last but not least, what are three key words that describe a successful business? Persistence, solution, 
and then finally execution. There are definitely three key words that are that are crucial to the success of any business. And let me just solution a little bit. So, in my experience, the best type of businesses were built being a solution to a problem to the extent that a lot of people had that problem you're able to provide that solution you're probably very very close to a very very successful business now you need the third term execution to make that happen but if you have the solution you're halfway there the pairing of those two i think is crucial because i especially in in the founder personality you need to have the visionary but then you also need to have that do a component that they can get the job done and and that's what i feel is sometimes the most difficult to to find probably is there anything else you would like to share with the audience before we close no it's been a pleasure pat i think we went through a lot of the different themes hopefully your audience finds this interesting certainly conversation with you was was very insightful for me so so thank you very much for the invitation and Thank you for listening to The Enthusiast Podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts to always stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you enjoy the work we are doing, drop us a review or give us a rating. This show is produced by me, Patrick Alex. Also a big shout out to Constanze Ulreich, who is leading our newsletter efforts and much more. Title music by Stock Studio called That Funk Show. <laughs>